We can start then from First Peter chapter three, from verse one to seven. Golda, please help us. Okay, verse one. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even some, some do not obey the word. They without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being urged together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Thank you, Gola. So obviously, there's a lot to unpack here, right? There's there are what you might call trigger words in this um, scripture, especially in our 21st century context, right? The word "be" or the expression "be submissive" or that word "submission." At least in the West, it's a it's a trigger for a lot of people. And then another word here that's that's a trigger or another phrase that's a trigger is "weaker vessel." What do these things mean? Um, so maybe I should start by asking us, right? Um, let's talk about marriage a bit today because I think it's necessary for us to do that. Right? What's your understanding or what's your take on what Peter is presenting here? Speaking into obviously our culture, right? And um, the context in which we live because I think the language is very clear what he's saying. What is often the challenge is translating it to our modern in quotes right modern context so how do you reconcile it what is he saying here what does submission mean to you essentially and what does it mean by weaker vessel you can pick up on any of those okay i think submission for me is humility to a large extent okay so being submissive to your own husband like no place for pride or self What's the yeah. Is that grand or something like that? Yeah. So mm -hmm. making it, bringing yourself down to be led and all of that. Yeah. So we can verse and that's the part that <laughs> I don't like. <laughs> okay. So let me just end that submission. <laughs> okay. Yeah. One of these words is probably going to trigger um, us in general, right? In our time. But I really like how you put it, the, the submission one, right? It's about what God is after is about self. Because if we live in a fallen world, it's a good question to ask, why would God allow the principle of headship and submission to be a thing in a fallen world when the, the very people who are supposed to exercise such headship are not perfect? We saw um, a picture of this kind of problem, right, in chapter two with the submission to governmental authority that this was a very real problem for the audience that Peter is writing to because the governmental authority that was being referred to was a tyrannical one, was a wicked one, if you like. Yet the apostle was making a case, right, that there is something about the glory of God that can only be revealed in submission to instituted authority, right? So I really like that expression you used, um, that what God is after is the self-nature. 
That's why even though the world is fallen, and even though men are fallen and women are fallen, he still allows the arrangement of headship and submission in marriage, in the church, right? Because he wants, he wants it to be a platform for the sacrifice of self. To be the, to be the platform, right? Where, where flesh <laughs> and its lusts and its desires where we will learn to put those things under for the glory of God. So you might have heard me say this before that all of us are called to submit, right? In one capacity or the other. Um, submission is not a strange idea in scripture. It's not an idea that is only injected when we talk about marriage. I'm going to look at what it means in the context of marriage, but... <clears throat> It's not an idea that is only restricted to marriage, which is some of the which is the mistake some of the people who don't like the word make, and that makes them completely reject the idea and the principle. Right? All of us are called to submit. For example, in the body of Christ, you are called to submit to the local expression of the body of Christ. Except if you are the pastor <laughs> of your church and the founder of your church and the chief elder of your church, then there is submission in your context. It doesn't matter if you're male or if you're female, right? And the same goes with your parents. There is a submission that is in keeping with God's will that is involved in your life with your parents. Um, and we've also seen the governmental one. So there's submission to spiritual authority, parental authority, governmental authority. In fact, the principle of submission is a principle that goes all the way up to the Godhead. So it's not a principle of inferiority because even though Christ submits to the Father, he is not inferior to the Father. But it's a mystical arrangement, like we've always said. Okay, I think it's helpful for us. Does someone have, want to say, add something else to, to, to that before we move on? Well, I think it's, a, it's, it's good for us to begin by understanding what Peter is not saying, right? So that by the time we understand what he's not saying, then we can understand what he's saying when he's talking about submission. So firstly, Peter is not making the case that all women should submit to all men, right? Because again, these are some misunderstandings that are actually ideas based on tradition that have been mixed with faith and that have created more problems than God intended in this area. Peter is not saying, and Paul, when he talks about submission in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, is not saying that all women should submit to all men. Rather, he's saying that wives should submit to their husbands, their own husbands. So the concept, the idea of submission here is limited or at least is primarily focused on, on marriage between two people, between a man and a woman, because we have many definitions of marriage nowadays. But this is what he's speaking about expressly. So we can make that first point, right? The second point we can make is that Peter is not asking husbands to demand or enforce submission. This is also another point that is missed whenever it is that these scriptures are used you know, to advance certain ideas. Right and certain practices. He's not saying, husbands, you have a right that God has given you the right to enforce. He's not saying that. Rather, he's asking wives to willingly offer themselves, 
to willingly submit themselves. So it's possible that in a Christian marriage, submission will not happen, right? And God will not have a problem with it if the wife is not willing. It's just that in such an arrangement, there will be problems, right? Because that's not the pattern that God designed. So he's not saying husbands demand or enforce submission. He's rather speaking to wives. Speaking to wives is saying, offer yourselves. Because anything other than willful and joyful submission, it's not the pattern that God wants to reveal through marriage. Remember, marriage is only, is only a pattern that reveals the glory of God. Marriage is like priesthood. Marriage is like that house that God is building. His aim is to produce his glory. His aim is to reveal his glory to the earth, to reveal that which is spiritual through a natural union. And if that is going to happen, then that natural union needs to be patterned after the one in heaven. And anything that involves forceful submission or grumpy submission or submission that is not joyful, it's not the pattern that God wants to reveal through marriage. And so that already tells you that a big test for you if you're going to get married as a woman is to ask yourself how likely you are to, to follow and submit to the person that you're getting married to. And a big test for you as a man is, <laughs> am I the kind of man that can lead a woman? Am I the kind of man that can be willingly followed, that a woman will be happy to follow? Right or to submit to. So this is I've mentioned two things that Peter is not saying. So what is he saying then? Like we've seen, he's revealing God's order for marriage between a man and a woman, right? And this order can be traced all the way back to the Godhead. That in the Godhead, even though the Father and the Son are equal, the Son submits to the Father. And in our human context, God allows this principle of headship and submission in the relationship that is closest to us, which is the relationship of marriage, as a way, and not just in this marriage relationship, right? But also in, like we said, in, in parent-child um, relationships, in governmental relationships, in spiritual authority relationships. What God is after is reading our hearts of the flesh so that we can make, so that he can make us more like himself. It is true submission that we learn to give up self, that we learn to tame the desires of self because we have to submit. I'm saying this, I'm saying this not just to speak to ladies, but to say that each of us, every one of us will go through the test of spiritual authority. That's one of the sacrifices that God desires because it is the only practical way that he can, he can ascertain that the self-life in us is gone. You know that it takes the debt to self for you to join yourself to a local church and commit to it and be planted there. Because it's very easy for you to start your own church, you know, and be the head pastor. Because then you, you are the one who is in charge, right? But it is the will of God that you're planted in local church. And if we're being honest with ourselves, Part of what makes it difficult for us to submit to that system or for us to become part of that system is because of the submission that is involved, right? You are participating in something where you don't set the agenda, right? You don't um, determine the flow, but you're submitting yourself as a Christian 
to the local expression of the body of Christ. And if you come into some kind of service or some kind of leadership in that context, you also have to submit. This is God's way of dealing with our independence. So just in case you find yourself, you don't feel like going to church or you don't feel like going to Bible study or whatever it is that is an expression, right, of, of the body of Christ, just know that that's your self-nature. That's flesh reacting. Because if it was you who was trained the party, you probably won't feel that way. Yes. That's just the reality of it. And God has set up um, that system of the body of Christ to deal with our tendency for independence so that we can forge a building. God cares about his building. God is building. And he wants different parts to form that house. Right? Um, does that make sense? That's my quick summary on the necessity of submission in the context of marriage um, and also outside of that context. Does that make sense? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it makes sense. I like the way you had to separate what Paul is not saying. Mm -hmm. Golda, did we lose you? No, no, no. That's what I just want. I, I that breakdown ah. was really appreciated. So at least okay. you know what he's not saying, so you can focus on what he's saying and not be generalistic in interpretations. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's where the issue is when everybody assumes. So let's be clear of what is and what is not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Adenike. Okay. Yeah, it's it made a lot of sense to me as well. Quite insightful. I like the way you um talked about submission in the context of marriage as well as the context of the church and leadership, you know, and family as well. Parents like a life of Christ is a life of submission <laughs> to authority. Yeah. Yeah. There's also something I need you to like maybe give your input on okay. is the text of um the women being the recovery. So, because from my understanding, what I see it as is more or less like strength, physical strength. But I don't know if it goes beyond that. Yeah. Thank you. Although you and I probably know some women that can beat up all the guys here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, at least we can tell upfront from our experience that it's not talking about physical strength, even though in more cases than not, it's, it's, it's the case, but it's, that's not his burden. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, now that we've talked about like submission, in a sense, we can then read these verses and then like go over them and just make some points there, right? So Peter is making the same point he made in chapter two, right? That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So you, we see this principle again, right? That the way to win over someone who is in close proximity with you, you know, I've always said that it's different when God puts someone far away from you and when God puts someone in close proximity to you, something like marriage, where if you wake up and you roll on the bed, you see the person. <laughs> if you come back at night, you meet the person. You see, that person, the way God expects and intends for you to win over that person, to relate with that person, it's completely different from your colleague at work that when it's five o'clock, you go home and you don't see the person. 
the, the close proximity is what calls for submission. The close proximity is what calls for humility, right? That in most cases than none, you are dealing with a fallen person who is still in their fallen ways. And this is what he's referring to here. And that means that the person is going to think in fallen ways. The person is going to behave in fallen ways. And if someone is fallen, it means that their heart is not really right. Even if, and they might be very intelligent, they might be able to reason. And if someone's heart is not there, there's no amount of argument and reasoning that you can bring into the picture that will make a difference. It will rather escalate problems. So in, in, in my view, my, in, in the way I pattern my life, I treat people differently <laughs> based on the level of closeness that I see that God has brought me with this person. If God makes someone your roommate, that's not the person to argue with every day. Right? You need to find another approach that makes transformation possible. And he's saying that your word is not the most powerful weapon you have as a Christian. Your ability to protest, right? your ability to go to court, is not the most powerful weapon you have as a Christian, that you have your conduct. And that your conduct is powerful enough to win over those who are unbelieving. This point has been repeated, was mentioned earlier in chapter 2, and it's mentioned it again. And in verse 2, he says, when they observe your chaste conduct, accomplished by fear. And then he talks about, let your adornment not merely be outward, you know, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. What he's saying here is that you need to create an atmosphere around your life, around your spirit, that enables the, the Holy Spirit to feel at home, that enables the presence of God to be at home. Don't create a contentious atmosphere just because you want your way. You know, that's some people's definition of submission. <laughs> that their definition of submission is that, okay, I'm going to follow what my husband says, but I'm going to make it miserable for him until he considers what I'm saying. But you see, there's an atmosphere that allows the Holy Spirit to walk in a family that allows the presence of God to work in a family and is asking wives to strive to maintain that atmosphere because it is precious in the sight of God. It, it creates a premise for God to invade a family. Now, you must remember that this is at the nascent stages of Christianity, right? Most of the people who Peter is writing to are first generation Christians. And what that means is that nobody else in their context believes what they believe. And so they are faced with a daunting task of not only holding on to their convictions, but convincing the world around them that everything they've lived for is false and this is true. And he's saying there is a character that you can have, that you can maintain a posture that can attract the presence of God, that wherever you are, things begin to change. I don't know if, it's, if you've experienced it in your life, that when God introduces you to a place, introduces you to a family, introduces you to a relationship, it's just as though salt was added to food. You know, salt itself doesn't have taste as, you know, by itself too much. You don't eat salt. But what happens with salt is that when salt is introduced, it causes the other flavors to find their vitality. And when you eat the food, you don't see the salt, you don't eat the salt, but, but the goodness that you're tasting of the product of the introduction of the salt. That's what Jesus meant by you at the salt of the earth. God is counting on you to preserve that family, 
not just by your prayers, but by your conduct. God is counting on you to preserve that company, not just by your prayers, but by your conduct. That's the story of Daniel in Babylon. If all he was doing was prayer and he didn't have a, a life that shone a brilliant light, uh, the purposes of God in that territory will not have been accomplished. But through Daniel's example, we saw that a disadvantaged slave could conquer an entire territory and survive the reign of four tyrant kings because of character. Character. He had character, he had skill, and he had devotion, these three things. That's what he's asking of us. Right? You may not be a wife. Like, I'm not a wife. But you're going to find yourself in contexts that are hostile to the gospel. You need character, you need skill, you need devotion. And that's what he's saying here, that in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also had done themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Remember the context of submission here, to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And then he gets to the big one, husbands. So this is the next thing to note, right? That <laughs> Peter doesn't just have admonition for wives. He also has admonition for husbands, even though it's one line. And in my view, this is actually more difficult than what he has talked about. And you're going to see why very shortly. Because many times when we hear about this, talks. It's as though the Bible only has things to say to wives and to women. He says, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, dwell with your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of God, that your prayers may not be hindered. So to husbands, Peter is saying, honor your wives. In fact, he's almost adding like a veiled threat here. Uh, which is indicative of the responsibility that headship is. Because, you know, headship is not the same as leadership, like we've said that before. Even though in our contemporary culture, both things um, have similar connotations, right? So you can be Angela Merkel, right? And you are the leader of Germany. You are the chancellor of Germany. <laughs> but when you go home, your husband is the head of the house. You can be Joyce Mayer, right? And you are the leader of a ministry. And you have a teaching gift to the body of Christ. But when you go home, your husband is the head of the home. So headship is not the same as leadership, at least not in God's eyes, right? Headship means responsibility. So Peter is saying that if the prayers of a couple are hindered, that God will hold the husband responsible. So that's one of the things headship means in the New Testament, in Christianity, that it means responsibility. It means that God is placing responsibility on the man. And what we find in our generation is the switching <laughs> of these terms. You know, I find that many men are happy to submit, and then it's the women who take up the responsibility, right? It's the women who take up the responsibility, even economically. It's the women who take up the responsibility spiritually. And there is just a passivity about men. Just in case you, you have a desire to get married, you have a good desire as a man. Right? The Bible applauds that desire, and you should have that desire because marriage is a context that will allow the best of the glory of God in you to come out. And that that marriage can put on display the glory of God. It can be a center where God 
can express himself much more than he would have done if you remained single, right? But you need to accept that I'm called to be responsible. I'm supposed to create an atmosphere and, and I'm supposed to be the kind of person that makes it easy for my wife to willingly submit. If I find myself insisting on submission, demanding submission, then it's, it's clear that I've done something wrong. I've missed it because my calling is to honor my wife, is to love my wife and create the kind of atmosphere, be the kind of person, build the kind of environment that creates a balance, that makes her feel loved and secure enough that she willingly offers herself. These are not my ideas. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, we, we don't have time to read it. Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 21 to 28. That's what the same thing that Paul says. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. You know, <laughs> like I was saying, the thing that God is asking husbands to do, it seems to me that it's easier for women to do it. And the thing that God is asking women to do, it seems to me that it's easier for for men to do it, right? Because I see a lot of men willing to submit and a lot of women willing to give their lives. But the pattern of God is the, is the other way around. Husbands love your wife, right? The same way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He gave himself. So that's what headship means. It's a place of responsibility, primarily spiritual responsibility, but also economic and social responsibility. I hope that makes sense to us. And then the topic of the weaker vessel. So when you find expressions like this in scripture, as you think about it, as you brood over it, one of the ways to address such topics is to look at, is to compare scripture with scripture, right? Um, and if you compare scripture with scripture, you'll find that Peter is referencing the four, when he talks about the weaker vessel. Of course, there's a sense in which he could mean physically weaker, which is expected, but um, it's not expected that the fact that somebody is physically weaker than you puts them at any sort of disadvantage whatsoever, right? Because a human being is so much more than their relative physical strength. So let's look at what he's talking about by the weaker vessel, right? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. So the context of Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve had fallen and God was giving his verdict. And in verse 16, he said to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Till this very day, the thing that makes a woman the most vulnerable is the entire process of reproduction, right? The entire process of childbirth. It puts a woman at risk practically in her life, right? Which is part of what makes women more responsible because it's like they learn to take care of themselves better, much, much earlier in life. So it puts her at that risk. And statistically, this is not even speaking spiritually now, statistically, it puts them at a greater risk economically. Right? Because when a woman starts making children, the first thing that suffers is her career. Of course, in our generation, some people have found a way to go around that problem by either deciding not to have children at all or by you know, 
placing career on the same cadre with with family. That's it. So that um, they essentially do not bring out the time that God has created them to bring out to provide nursing for the children. But you see, the person that bears the greater brunt for every act of sexual intercourse is the woman. Right? It has the greater effect on the woman, both emotionally, physically, and practically. That's what is meant by the weaker vessel. That's what he has in mind. And it is because of this pain of reproduction, if you like, that God said that your desire will be for your husband. What it means is that in, in, in this arrangement, the woman will be practically dependent on her husband. Yes, she'll be practically dependent on not just her husband, but on the people around her, but most especially her husband, right? Because the burden and the pain of her production is going to practically limit her possibilities. Not that, not that, she, not that she doesn't have those possibilities in her, right? Not that she doesn't have the potential. But when that moment comes, remember, he's talking to husbands and wives. He's not talking to women in general, he's talking to husbands and wives, he's speaking very clearly in the context of marriage. And he's taking for granted that every marriage aspires to have children. Right. So the woman will be dependent on her husband. And that's why women, by default, are very careful about who they pick to play that role. Right. They want to see responsibility. They want to see accountability. Right. Um, that's what he means. That's what it means there. I don't want us to spend so much more time on it. Um, so we can take your questions and your thoughts on that. Does that clarify it for you? I know we have more women in this call, so I would like to hear what you think. Hi, Joshua. So yeah, yeah. your explanation makes like a lot of sense. I have not actually thought of um, eating that light, but yeah, going back to Genesis and um, trying to like draw a parallel between to makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Adenike. So you see that there is a weight on the husband, right? And that weight is the weight of responsibility. It's not a role that can be fulfilled carnally. And that's why marriages have been breaking down severely, right? Because you cannot have marriage without Christ. It takes Christ to be a man. It takes Christ to bear that weight of responsibility easily. And it also takes Christ to be a woman. So Christ knows what it means to be head. And he also knows what it means to submit. It takes Christ to endure the pain and receive the joys of motherhood. Of course, every woman here knows that nothing compares to the joys of motherhood. So it's not just all pain all the way right? But um, I don't even want to go into the more psychological aspects of this that have been developed um, and very clearly in the, in the scientific field. But a lot about a woman's wiring makes, makes her the way she is. And all of that put together is what um, Peter means here by the weaker vessel. So you see, even though he calls her the weaker vessel, he says that both of you husband and wife are heirs together of the grace of life. 
So in, 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 in the spirit, that's why Paul says that in Christ, there is no male or there's no female. He's not saying that gender fluidity is what is the new norm. No, he's talking about in the spirit. That in the spirit, you're not superior to your wife. In the spirit, you're not superior to your husband. You are heirs of together. Your partners together of the grace. Just that in the practicality of human life, the woman bears the biggest burden for reproduction. So that's what he's referring to here. Okay, then we can move on, right? Can you read for us, Golda, from verse 8 to 12? Mm, finally, all of you be one of Sorry, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be cautious, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who loved, he will love life. Okay, he would love life and see mm -hmm. good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To 12, right? Yeah, thank you. Well, I don't want to be the one to explain this because it's quite self-explanatory. So I would like to hear what stands out to you in these verses. Um, I would really like to hear what you, what you take from it. So... Just to give some context, um, Peter is saying he's switching now to his um, to a different exhortation, right? So he's focused um, a lot on the idea of submission in all contexts and the idea of, um, yeah, just submitting for the glory of God, whether it's marriage or it's parental or it's government or it's spiritual. Um, and now he's switching to the idea of unity of mind, right? So be of one mind. And he's talking to believers and he's exhorting them to compassion for one another, to love as brothers, to be tender-hearted. Why do you think this is the case? And what do you think he's trying to pass across to these Christians by giving them this charge? I think it follows what you were talking about conduct before. So okay. making um, Christians like we are all supposed to be examples. So as mm -hmm. I just in marriage alone, going beyond that in our daily lives should reflect Christ, like our conduct, not doing evil for evil, like there should be a clear difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Thank you, Golda. Something in the chat. I think these are the values and character of God. Yes, remember that love is the bond that holds all the commandments of God together, right? Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, right? But the thing is that nobody can see the Lord your God. And so the only way they can see the Lord your God and understand his nature is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and the reason why that is doubly important in a redemptocentric world is specifically because men and women are fallen. So even if you come into Christian fellowship, and this is one of the problems Christians have, right? And all of us have, 
that when we come into Christian fellowship, we meet all kinds of people. But we have, to, we have to realize that the church is often the last resort for people in society. It's the last place where people feel completely accepted, regardless of where they've been, who they've been, their past and their present. So something in you needs to be open to have compassion. You're going to meet people who are suffering because it's their fault. You're going to meet people who are suffering because it's not their fault. It's just unexplainable. You're going to meet all kinds of people. And you're going to also have your own issues. But love is doubly important in a world that is following. People need compassion. They need a tender-heartedness. Right? So that's a sure way to reveal to the world the nature of your God. Friends, Peter's burden is that our lives will produce the glory of God. And I'm confident through God that that will be the case, that, that God's glory will begin to emerge in our spaces, right? In our families, in our workplaces, in our cities, in our lives, on account of this study, on account of what his word is bringing to us. It's God's desire that his glory will be revealed. And that's why he's asking us to put on these virtues. Okay. Any other points that you notice from here? Okay, I think another point he was emphasizing on was the whole evil part. Like, turn away from evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So aside from just being, um, aside from loving people and all of that, like we should desist from evil. Like that's one other aspect that can really go, turn God's face away from us. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, if what is interesting here is that um, Peter seems to be presenting what our some of our 21st century preachers will call legalistic preaching because he's making a cause and effect case, case here using Old Testament scriptures. Well, first of all, before we go there, there's one thing in verse 9, right? He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Of course, this is him asking you to model your life after Christ, right? Because remember chapter two, when he was reviled, he did not revile back to model your life after Christ. But he's saying that there's a knowing, there's a knowledge that you're going to have, right? That is going to enable you walk like this. He's saying knowing that you were called to this that you may inherit a blessing, that there is something precious that you have with God. That thing is both in the present and in the future. And there is nothing that can block you from that flow of life, from that flow of blessing, from that flow of the presence of the spirit, like anything that advances a lack of love, right? Whether it is bitterness or unforgiveness or a critical spirit, or it is strife that you're supposed to be aware of the preciousness of what you have. And because of that, you're supposed to detest anything that attempts to defile your soul, right? Defile your spirit, make your, fear, your spirit filthy so that you cannot enjoy what you have in God. Friends, I want to always be in sync with God. And that is why I will, by the grace of God, forgive easily, right? That is why, by the grace of God, I will not pick offense easily. That is why, by the grace of God, I will apologize easily. Because I have something precious with the Holy Spirit. Yes. 
I want it to be that on account of my life, many are turned from darkness to light. You know that God could have killed us after all. Well, let's not use the word killed because it's quite an intense word. Well, God could have extracted us from the earth after he saved us if his ultimate goal was just to save us. But his ultimate goal was not just to save us. Salvation was a COVID relief package, right? It, it, salvation was, um, was a remedial package. His goal was kingdom participation. And his goal still is kingdom participation. That there are good works. You are God's workmanship, crafted before time began to do good works. That your life is not an accident. That the city, the family where you're planted is not an accident. That God specifically modeled you and planted you in that place so that you can do good works. That's your business. That's what you're supposed to occupy yourself with. And anything that will defile you, right, and make you not a channel of those good works, you're supposed to reject it. Stephanie, you have some questions in the chat. What about this thing, an eye for an eye? What if people see you as weak, stupid? and timid i think we 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 touched on this a little bit last week right that first of all submission like we're saying does not mean submitting your conscience right there's something that belongs to god and there's something that belongs to caesar so nobody is permitted to violate your conscience you're supposed to resist you're supposed to violate everything that attempts to violate your conscience Right. Also, um, you're supposed to be able to stand up for yourself and for others. The dividing line, right, is that you need to be willing to let go if need be. Remember, when we started this letter, we said that even though this letter is about suffering, Peter is not inviting us to have a martyr complex, right, to, to look for suffering and look for trouble. He prefixes all his call to suffering with if if need be so what it means is that you do what you need to do even if it means legal action right as long as the holy spirit does not prevent you from doing it you do it but you leave the outcome to god after you do the earthly thing you 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 commit the case to a higher spiritual court right and then, like we've always said, if a problem is spiritual, you are not advised <laughs> or meant, you are not meant to be or advised to be nice or even kind about spiritual problems. Because in spiritual problems, you are dealing with an adversary. Right? So you need to face the adversary and resist the, the adversary steadfastly. But if you are dealing with men, with men, you need compassion. Stephanie, does that help you with your question? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I do get it. But I'm like, in terms of retaliation, right? So mm -hmm. someone does something to you and it's like, if you sit back, it's going to look like everyone is, in fact, going to label you as stupid, which for me, it has happened almost all through my life. Like, 
I've been given that label. You know, she won't do anything. She won't do anything. She won't do anything. But the thing is, is it like, if I try to retaliate, is that evil? If I try to fight back or give the person a taste of their own medicine, because I have this, you know, fight with my conscience every time. What would Jesus do? What would the Holy Spirit say? Or what is the Holy Spirit saying? And I'm hearing, oh, okay, yeah, like you said, compassion, love this and that but then the people just keep doing the same thing over and over again and then it's yeah. keeps looking like you know one is stupid over and over and over again mm -hmm. so at what point do you say you know what i'm I, i'm done with this love forgiveness compassion thing i'm gonna throw i'm gonna strike back Mm -hmm. God does say vengeance is mine as well. So I'm yeah. using all these messages, all these verses to rationalize why I shouldn't act. But then again, it just feels like it has gotten up to there. When should mm -hmm. I then strike back? Should I strike back? You know, or should I just keep being the punching bag, the one receiving the the brunt of yeah. the whole thing? That's that that's just what I'm thinking. Does this whole don't repay evil for evil, blah blah blah? Yeah, I know it's scripture, but it's like after how much can one take? You know. Sorry if I'm divert taking this <laughs> no. thing. Some, someone someone in the chat already, already agrees with you. Um so just to before I say anything, just to say that there's no one size fits all answer to your question. Your question is clearly a pastoral topic, right? That, need, that needs pastoral guidance. And what that means is that you need to actually talk to someone about a specific thing and hear what God has to say about it, right? But there are a few questions you need to ask yourself in general. So this is speaking more generally. You need to ask yourself, what kind of person will I become, right? To take vengeance. And that's what concerns God more than anything else. The Bible says that this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that just in case you think God has no business in your life, you can be sure that he has one business, right? He's sanctifying you. And the reason why God asks us to refrain from vengeful behavior is what kind of person are you becoming or would you have to be in order to take vengeance? And when he says vengeance is mine, he's saying that only God has the moral balance, right? To bring the right amount of punishment in the right proportion at the right time without becoming wicked, right? Without, without being filled with hatred. However, none of this means that you don't have the right to respond or to defend yourself. If you look at Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees, he he destroyed all their arguments till the point came when the Bible says nobody dared to argue with him again, right? And if we had time, it looks like we're not going to have time, but we would have seen how, how um, um, Peter deals with an, a, a version of that kind of problem when it comes to defending your faith, specifically. Um, but we are called as Christians to pull down arguments. And like Peter said, one of the most effective ways of doing that is by your conduct. Let your, let your conduct be above reproach. 
let your conduct be above blame so that it is very clear that whatever is happening is unjust, right? But then there are times when God invites us to argue for ourselves and for his glory, right? There are times when God invites us to defend ourselves. And it's necessary for you to realize when to do that. See, James tells us that faith without works is dead. I don't want to give you too many, any personal examples, except if we talk one-to-one, -one, but I can give you personal examples of when some people thought that, you know, they could just do what they wanted around me and actually kept quiet because, of course, I'm a pastor, no? Or at least I preach the word of God. And then after one week later, even the Holy Spirit himself was agitated <laughs> inside of me. I, I could feel it, that he was agitated. So I took, I took punitive action. Of course, not vengeful action, not the kind of action that is the kind of action I took is the kind of action Jesus took when he took a whip and he flogged people and sent them out of the temple. Right. Um, and guess what? The moment that action was taken, the whole thing was reversed, you know, and, and it's as though they were just waiting for you to stand up for yourself, right? Before they realized that, hey, they're not supposed to um, trespass around your space. So that's why I said that this there's no one size fits all. Um, God calls us primarily to live for his glory. And that is very clear. All of us must agree and accept and acknowledge that that will mean that we will look foolish sometimes. But there are many times when the Holy Spirit of, of God inside of you will be agitated. And you rise up and you do what he asks you to do whether it is taking legal action or it is um, just speaking up, presenting sound arguments to silence foolish people or whatever it takes. Right. Stephanie, your hand is raised. I think the problem is that a lot of Christians have this <clears throat> dilemma, you know, quite a lot. Okay, I'll just be, bring, make it more practical. Uh, there's an issue that is going on in, in with my cousin at the moment where a, one lady came to her house to beat her up, right? So my cousin sued the lady to court. And then the case, you know, stalled a bit. Eventually my cousin went to church. They spoke about forgiveness. She's like, okay, let me use my church mind to dump this case. And so she dropped the case. The lady went and sued my cousin for defamation because she drops the case, right? And then sued my cousin for 13 million naira. Now she was the one that beat my cousin up. But my cousin was like, I don't know why I dropped this case. This church, I don't know, is it doing me well or is it doing me bad? You know, you know, she was like, why did I forgive this lady? Why did I drop the case? Yeah, and she went so to church, she heard, of the word it touched her heart she became <laughs> her heart became malleable teaching it was like maybe i'm just doing too much gaga vengeance is the lord's and that was how she dropped it now she's in more trouble she has spent more money than she would have so i don't mm -hmm. know if it's the problem of not hearing the voice of god no it's not, or, that. It's not okay. that it's not that right it's what i was saying to you earlier that what you're talking about is not something we can discuss in Bible study because it's specific. Like, if you have a situation like this, you need pastoral care. You need to call somebody. It's not enough that you went to church and you heard something and then you decided what to do. 
right? God did not create any of us to live in that level of independence. He didn't create any of us to live in that level of independence. Even if you're super mature, you're going to meet cases that you're going to need your brothers and your sisters, right? So it's very easy to say, oh, I went to church. Because, you know, as so a so preacher, you're, you're talking to no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying, right? That um, if you're faced with such a practical thing that requires pastoral care and you are sure you don't know what to do, right? And you're sure that, you know, or that even if you know what to do, you're not sure if you have the ability to follow through to the very end, right? Then please look for, please look for pastoral care. I encourage all of us to do that. Pastoral care does not necessarily have to be a colored pastor. At least that's not God's arrangement. God's arrangement is that all of us are supposed to be priests. So in your immediate context, there's somebody you can text and call and talk with and pray with. Because I believe that um, some level of common sense would have, well, not like, let me not use the word common sense because that may sound harsh, right? But um, it, it would have been certainly possible to keep the case in court and still forgive, right? Because it's a, um, and the court case is a sufficient deterrent, right? It would have been definitely possible. However, it's not also entirely wrong if somebody felt led to withdraw such a case. It's just that if you're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, if you're going to allow God to take vengeance, then you need to be ready to follow it to the end, right? If God says vengeance is mine, and then it looks as though the situation got worse. The question is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? You know, God, God wants to deliver us by all means from, from self-dependence. A lot of people take those decisions just on intuitions, you know, intuitions of the moment. And I'm not saying this to say that the rest of us are perfect. All of us have made some kind of move like this, right? That we just compounded the problem. And the reason why that is the case is that God is many times willing to allow things like this to happen, right? So that he can deliver us from self-dependence. So that next time you will pray and pray and make sure that you have prayed and prayed before you do it. Or next time you will talk to more people. The same thing happens in the in the topic of marriage, right? You see two young people, and then the only reason they are getting married is their own personal conviction, right? They've not run it through parents. They've not run it through pastors. They've not run it through anybody else. Both of them are just convinced. God did not design, as beautiful as that is, right? There's a place for the independence of your reception of revelation from God. But everything that you're going through is a setup for God to connect you to the family of God. And if you make a mistake because you connected to the family of God, that's a good mistake to make. Because then you are going to come under the covering of the family of God. Right? So the main point I'm making is that it's something that requires pastoral care. And even... In the in the situation where it is right now, the case is not even hopeless, right? It still it still requires the same pastoral care, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's what I would encourage all of us, you know. Um, does that make sense to you, Stephanie? Okay. 
So we need to finish up. Can you read for us then, Golda, from verse 13 to 17 so that we can wrap this up? Okay. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for good, for doing good and for doing evil. 18. No, 17 is fine. So Stephanie, it sounds like you need to read this verse. Yeah, <laughs> you need to read this verse to your cousin, but read it from a distance so that you don't become a victim of, of the emotions that may follow after you read it. Because he's using the exact same words that he used. The fame is in this is in these verses. He's almost direct. <laughs> okay. I noticed. <laughs> Christianity is very practical, right? The word of God finds us where we live. In the very place where we live. Well, there was a point I was trying to make earlier, right? Which is that there's almost a cause and effect arrangement that Peter is talking about here. So, you see, because there's a tendency for us to think that the grace of God nullifies all efforts of man. The grace of God, like someone said, is not opposed to effort. It's only opposed to earning, right? There's none of us that earns the favor of God or the mercy of God. If any of us is a recipient of the mercy of God, it is because of his sovereign mercy. He could have chosen not to show mercy. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do that will cover up for, for your sin, right? It is the grace of God. However, God has determined that he is going to continue to operate by that principle of seed time and harvest time, right? God has, God has a nature, and the nature of God is that he's just. And that's why I said last week that in your priesthood, the most important principle in priesthood is your relationship to God. That's what gives you access. If we start praying now, all of us will be able to talk to God. And if we press further, we might even be able to prophesy. You know, that's a huge thing to any Jew. It was not possible even for the Jews to have such an experience. It was special, but we, you and I can have it. And it's our relationship, right? Not our perfection that gives us access to that. But you see, our relationship is not the only thing that we bring to the table in our priesthood. The next thing we bring to the table in our priesthood is our alignment with God. Those are the two most important principles of priesthood. And many things that you will not be able to get by relationship, you will get by alignment, right? Because you can see that many Christians or every Christian has a relationship with God, but not every Christian is experiencing God at the same level or at the same frequency. Your alignment with God, friends, is all you have. Yes, just in case Satan is, is pressuring you into evil, your alignment with God is all you have. That's what guarantees that the God of hosts can release those hosts just because you uttered your voice, your alignment with God. So the standards of God were not eliminated in the New Testament, like we said. God did not become a teddy bear in the New Testament because of grace. Grace is a system that in which God has found a way to make us able, able to meet the demands of the law. 
right? That's what we saw in, I think it's Hebrews chapter six, right? Where the writer says that God is not unfaithful to forget your labor of love. He's not unfaithful. He will remember it. But you see, it's called a labor. And the arrangement in the New Testament is that what God does is that he wants to reward you and I. Right? Yes, he wants to reward you with that beautiful, fruitful marriage. He wants to reward you with all the good things in life, both in this life and in life to come. The way he does it is that he supplies grace so that you can begin to labor. You just know that there's grace to labor. And then you, you labor your way into reward. But the labor, it was not you. That's the, that's the balance that Paul was trying to lay, that, that I am what I am by the grace of God, that I labored. I started as the least of the apostles, but I labored. But then when I take a step back, I realized that it wasn't actually me laboring. Because if it was me, my zeal would have, would have been lost at a point. But it was the grace of God. I, I found the right messages at the right time. I found the right books at the right time. I, I, I heard the right words in the right moment. I had the right friends in the right moment. All of these circumstances that I couldn't control. I had the right encounters in the right moment. The grace of God. So the grace of God comes to enable us to fulfill the standard of God. So that's how the system works. God releases grace and enables you to labor in a particular direction. He enables you to pray, to fast, to wait on him. And as you do that, you unlock rewards. The New Testament life is a supernatural life that is powered by the grace of God. And that's why each of us, you and I, must realize our dire need for the grace of God. Every time that we're weak, every time we're unwilling, it's an invitation to beckon on the throne of grace. So that's what he was saying in verse 10 to verse 12, right? That your alignment with God, your righteous conduct can be a fence around your life. I don't know if you've seen a bush that's on fire. You know that the bush doesn't need to protect itself from what? From animals, from wild animals. The fire itself is the protection that the bush needs. Right? So that's what he's saying. Who is he who will harm you? If you become followers of what is good, your alignment with God is critical. Right? And your alignment with God is not necessarily limited to doings. It's, it's primarily about following, about yielding. So it's not possible to be in alignment with God, but you're not praying. In fact, if you're not praying, you're out of alignment. It's not possible for you to be in alignment with God and you're not opening your Bible. You're not hearing his voice. All of that activity, right, that keeps you yielded, that keeps you dependent, um, dependent that keeps you following. That's what strengthens your alignment with God. However, Peter is aware that even though you have alignment with God, it is possible that God can allow suffering in your life despite that. That's why he says in verse 14 that even if you should suffer, so it's possible that you took the right decision. It's possible that you went where the Spirit of God led you. But then it feels like the Israelites in Numbers chapter 14, right? Remember they were thirsty and Moses led them. In fact, that was the time when God led Israel like never before. It was clear that the voice of God was there. Move left, move right. 
you know, in the wilderness, everywhere looks like everywhere. <laughs> so if you say move left, left can be anywhere in the wilderness. But God led them to a brook that was dried up. It was God who led them. Or was it dried up brook? But the beautiful thing about the story is that that was not the end of the leading. Right? Because they began to murmur. But God had an idea. He had a plan. He had a purpose. He said, sing to the well. Spring up, oh well. If, if, if they didn't arrive at a dry brook, they wouldn't have realized that it was possible to sing to a, to a well, spring up a well. And that's what Peter is saying, that even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. So do not be afraid of their threats. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that when you are not afraid of the threats of the enemy, they become afraid. Sorry, Philippians chapter 1, I think the next to last verse of Philippians chapter 1. It says, in nothing afraid of your enemies, which is to them a sign of their destruction. When you're not afraid, is it money you want? I have something more than money. And I was just listening to that song before this Bible study. Something more than gold. I have something more than gold. When, when you have lost all fear for the devil, he becomes afraid. And verse 15 says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Unfortunately, we're really out of time. I would have really loved us to unpack this verse. So maybe we'll pick up from there next week um, because it's, it's the anchor verse that answers a lot of the questions that we've raised tonight. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. But just to give a quick summary of this, right? So the first thing he's asking us to do is to sanctify God in our hearts, right? Mean, meaning that we should make God our only fear, right? That's what Jesus said. Do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but has no authority over the soul. But fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Make God the center of your life. Let it be that it is for God's glory that you're living for. Right? It's not, it's not for a made-up agenda. It's not for a purpose you designed. Because then you have to pay the fee for that purpose. But ensure that your life is centered around the glory of God. That the jealousy of God's glory is what is guiding your life. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. And then he says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. How can you always be ready? We'll talk about this next week. But you can see that the first thing there is that you need to be grounded in the hope that is in you. What is the hope that is in you? You see, is the, ho the hope that is in you needs to be superior to suffering. Right? It needs to be superior to evil that men can do in the environment. Right? It needs to be superior to circumstances. It needs to be superior to the desires of your flesh. It needs to have enough pull, enough hold on your soul, on my soul, that you'll be able to maintain a good conscience at every time because of that hope that is in you. Okay. That's where we're going to stop tonight. But these last few verses have shown us the texture of the justice system of God, right? It, the 
texture of the holiness of God, that the life that we live for the glory of God would have to learn the practical implications of submission, right? But also practically what it means to sanctify Jesus in our hearts and be ready at all times to give a defense. And, and, and that's the cry of my heart in this study, that more and more the glory of God will be revealed through us, more and more, more and more. Yes, that we will live under the light of his face, perpetually under the light of his countenance, that we will be marked out by a distinct light, that we will know what to do at all times and in each moment. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.